I'm sure you're going to be interviewing many people for this position. But the main thing I want you to remember about me is blank and then just nail it. You know, practice that. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. David Usum, who's our Associate Dean for Professional Development. And Dave's here again today to talk about how to nail the job interview. Not that we want you to leave if you are faculty in any of our institutions. However, we understand you have opportunities that arise in mid-career or some point in your life. If you're doing a good job, you're going to be wooed away, try to be wooed away anyway, And if you're a trainee, you are going to be preparing, hopefully, to be a faculty member at one of our institutions. So welcome back to the podcast, Dave. What do you got for us today? Hey, Kim. Today I want to talk about nailing that job interview, and I'm going to organize my thoughts, if you will, on five basic concepts. The first being, how do you prepare for a job interview? The second, which is what type of question should you expect? And that's also part of the preparation, I guess. Uh Number three is... How do you make that lasting impression that after they've interviewed 40 people for the job and you're number two, uh-huh. uh, that they'll still remember you? Okay. Number four is what are the mistakes? What, what are the potential pitfalls that you can make during the interview? And number five is h- how do you follow up after the interview? Okay. So if I'd like to start with preparation for the job interview. This is, this is not a time where you kind of go in as a blank slate and knowing nothing about the company or the university or the practice that you're interviewing in. It really is worthwhile doing some research to make sure that it's a group that you actually would want to work for based on their mission, vision, values, for example, or based on the type of people that you are going to be working with. So I think that It's important to spend the time doing a rough sketch of the potential employment opportunity and making sure that it does comport with what you have in mind for your vision. There's also the preparation of your for yourself, and that is if you're looking online at them, you can pretty much be sure that they may be looking online at you. So this is the time that if you do have a public Facebook or Instagram or other social media persona, you want to make sure that it comports with the values of the group. So it may be time to take down that picture of you at the, uh, you know, at the beer bash (laughs) and instead have one of you presenting material at an annual meeting of a society. So a little bit of preparation on self-reflection as well as cleaning up whatever might be publicly available about you that you would prefer to keep private. I think the other type of research that is done is about the boss that you're going to be working with and also inquiring as to the people that have potentially left the department or left the practice or left the company. Sometimes the most valuable information that you get in advance is about people who were not happy at the company to see whether you have the same you would have the same issues or to bring up those questions at the time of the interview 
in a way that is socially appropriate without being too inflammatory. So I like, you know, finding out who left the institution, who left that private practice, who left that company, and talking with them about the reasons why they leave. And if they're leaving because they got a better job and a promotion elsewhere, then that's one thing. If they're leaving because they were unhappy, you want to know and do that investigation in advance. So that way you might ask people about whether they've resolved those issues or whether those issues that the person felt that were present were, are still present mm-hmm. or whether they're valid. So uh, doing a little bit of, of preparation in, in advance if you need to, and you're not comfortable with interviewing, certainly doing a mock interview would be appropriate or reading up on interviewing techniques or taking that Dale Carnegie course, whatever it might be so that people will like you a lot. I think is also part of the of the prep for the interview. The second part that I mentioned, Kim, was about what type of questions should one expect. And there are different types of questions that are typical at interviews. There's sort of the classic question about what's your what's your mission in life? You know, what what are you hoping to accomplish? That's sort of a straightforward classic question. Then there are the questions that people ask, like if you were in a situation where you had to go into work uh, on the weekend, uh, what, what, what would you do in that situation? And, you know, taking up family time and, and coming into, into work on the weekend. That's a hypothetical question where you kind of give it your best shot. And sometimes what you might say is idealistic and per- perfect, but it's not the truth. Mm. And because so many interviewers kept getting the idealistic, perfect answer to the hypothetical question, I think that people have moved to what's called behavior-based questioning. So behavior-based questioning asks you about an actual incident that you have experienced and is not a hypothetical. So, uh, for example, uh, behavior-based questions would be something like, tell me about time when your boss was unavailable and you had to evaluate something quickly and make a decision without your boss's approval. So it's an actual event. It's not hypothetical. What would you do if your boss wasn't there and you had to make a decision about uh, a patient care issue? And the value of this is hopefully that people are honest about it and that it gets to what the person would actually do in a similar situation as opposed to the idealist perfect answer. So most people say that the way you handle behavior-based questions is in three parts. So a behavior-based question, you say, all right, here's what happened. My boss wasn't around. There was a question about whether a patient should go into the magnet because he had a pacemaker, and I had to make the decision, and I decided that the patient, because the risk-benefit ratio was such, uh, we put the patient with a pacemaker into the MRI magnet, okay? So that's what happened. And then the second part of it is, what did you learn from that experience? So we put the patient into the magnet, and the patient did just fine. And what I learned was that there are certain pacemakers that actually are MR-compatible, and that you can scan a patient with a pacemaker, with a cardiologist present, Etc. And it, it actually it can be safe in the right circumstances. That's what I learned. And then the third part of the behavior-based question is, what would you do 
differently now that you have that knowledge. So the third part is uh, we would establish a policy that given, you know, uh, Smith and Jones types of pacemakers can be scanned with Dr. Um, Black present uh, as the cardiologist overseeing it, and we can make a policy of it. And once we have a policy of it, then emergency pacemaker patients could still be scanned with MRI. So the three parts are, here. here's what happened, here's what I learned from the experience, and here's what I would do differently in the future. And, and the third part is, is sort of the insight mm-hmm. you know, of what transpired. The second part is sort of just making conclusions, and the first part is the actual story. Yeah. So more and more people use behavior-based questions because it does get at more than just the classic and the hypothetical uh, questioning that people can look up online the correct answer for, you know, a hypothetical, yeah. etc. What I, lo- I love about that, and I'm so glad you gave those specific examples, Dave, is that it, the, especially the last part, the, you know, what would you do differently, lends itself to authenticity and honesty in um in a special way that again it's it is more to me an opportunity to be more genuine and people then can understand how you think and what kind of a what is your character and i'm reflecting back on a podcast oh earlier last year with dr dan shapiro at penn state and dan has developed this behavioral interviewing technique with candidates and um c suite executive level folks where they present the candidate on site, they're, they're told ahead of time that this will happen. They actually have scenarios where an actor, an actress will come in and play a disgruntled faculty member, for example. And then the candidate has to demonstrate how she or he would, um, in, in interact with that, um, faculty member. And they literally do it live and t- again, tell the person there's, we're going to do a mock session here. And then exactly what you just talked about, the third thing of what would you do differently is they, they, they allow the 10, 12 minutes of the scenario and acting out how this person would handle it and then give the candidate the opportunity to say, all right, like what you're saying, this is clearly, you know, it's a typical example of what happens. It was nothing, you know, crazy, you know, out, in an outlier example. What, what happened? How did you do? How did you feel about how you did? You did, and what did, would you do differently? And that component, I think, is that again. What would you do differently, or what did you do? How did you learn from this? Was the the candidate being honest, saying, you know, I I wasn't um, real pleased with the way I, for example, maybe gave orders versus being curious and asking more questions. Or if I did it over again, perhaps I would have asked about what's going on in their life. Is there something else I should know about that's prohibiting them from, you know, closing encounters and not doing their work or something like that. But that reflection is, I think, so critical to demonstrating to the panel or the interviewers, how does this person think? And then their honesty and that being able to be humble and saying, you know, I'm not real pleased with the the way I did this or in your example, in the MR machine, well, I would, um, I wasn't pleased with how long I did this or how long this took, but in the future, I'm going to do that. So that kind of um, reflection, I think, is really important to the whole process. Sure, and some and some of the questions, the behavior-based questions, actually try to ask you about your failures in, in yeah. order to see whether you have insight yeah. and uh, emotional self-intelligence. So let me just give a couple of 
other examples of behavior-based questions. Give an example of a time where your ability to read someone's feelings about an issue allowed you to effectively handle a problem. So a little bit about how well you do with emotional intelligence. Give a workplace example where you generally do not practice what you preach mm. to your own ways. Or tell us about a time or tell us about your least successful working relationship and analyze why that seemed to go wrong. Now, with that little analyze why that seemed to go wrong, they're, they're kind of giving you the hint, but you could just say, tell us about your least successful working relationship. And it should not just be, well, the guy was, you know, really harsh and he was insensitive and he was not communicative, period. Right. It should be some element of, and here's what I did to work around it, and here's what I learned from uh, working with that type of person. And right. in the future, if I were to work with someone who basically only communicated via Twitter, here's how I would handle it. So it's another example. Or uh, give an example where you're currently going above and beyond the call of duty on a project, and et cetera. So these type of things, uh, what are they listening for? They're listening for your communication skills. They're listening for, as you said, sort of the emotional self-intelligence or, or self-analysis that, you, that you, you can look at yourself as well as the third part, which is the empathy, which is how you impact other people. Mm -hmm. So all of that is the component of these behavior-based questions. Now, you may run into at Google or, you know, one of the, we usually say it's, it, it's typically an IT company where they will give you the brain teaser question of, you know, how do you, how would you get 20 elephants into a moving van? You know, mm. <laughs> those are the questions. Um, fortunately, they don't happen too often in medicine, but um, that's, that's sort of a fun thing. You're, you're, you're just going to have to go with it. I don't think that this is the type of thing where you can plan on one of these brain teaser questions, but I think it's sort of they're trying to get at your thought process, if you will. Yeah. So the third part I, I listed in the intro here was how do you make a lasting impression? And this sort of gets back to that issue of integrity. And that is, I think, you, you can make a lasting impression by being true and honest and open about what your mission is. And that is getting back to the, that fundamental idea of mission, vision, values, and that is trying to impress upon them that you are a person of integrity that really is dedicated to a specific mission that is really important in your life, that this is what you are trying to accomplish. And when you can bring some of those questions or some of the reflections back to your integrity about your mission in the practice, I think really is helpful. I counsel my trainees and my mentees to be as explicit as possible about that that lasting impression and the way I, by that I mean as you get towards the end of the interview that you actually state you say to them you know I'm sure you're going to be interviewing many people for this position but the main thing I want you to remember about me is blank and then just nail it you know yeah. practice that yeah. Because you want them to write that down. <laughs> and when they, you know, when they are reflecting back about, you know, Dr. Yusum as the candidate, they will remember that his mission is to create leaders. That, that's what he said. You know, it, he asked me to remember this. Mm -hmm. um, um, 
Yeah, so you're specifically asking the interviewer to, if you remember anything about me, the main thing is I love puppies, you know? Right. <laughs> My job coach, when I was interviewing for the Hopkins job, Dr. Laura Schweitzer told me uh, just over and over and over again, you need a mantra, 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 or three mantras. She said, as we, she was coaching me, you know, three things that you want to say over and over and over again. You think of it almost like politicians, how when they go stumping, you know, they always say the same thing, like almost sometimes, regardless of whatever the question they're asked, they say the same thing. And you're like, why do they keep saying that? That's their mantra. Again, you you hit people about the head over and over and over, repeating those mantras or the single mantra so that you're exactly right. They remember, oh, that's right. That's the puppy guy. And that way there's no confusion. You you it's like personal branding. Yeah, yeah. And and the other the, the third part of that besides your mission and sort of what you remember, I think is what is their return on investment if they hire you? And that's another thing. What do, what can, what will you bring that is of value to them? And and this is why it's specific to, to you have to analyze or, or research the program or the group that you're trying to join. What is it that you can bring them that has that added value, that return on investment if you hire me, yeah. your teaching program in obstetrical ultrasound will become the best in the nation because right. I have that expertise. I've done it, and I can bring you to a new level right. with regard to part of your OB practice. Better so than anyone the- else and unique or different from anyone else. Unlike anyone else, I have this and that because we're all unique. You're all unique. You're all uniquely gifted and talented. So there is literally no one out there who could do this and that. You can hire people who, yeah, I can run that MR machine, but I can also do this. So that your emphasis on added value is the thing that makes you unique and you special that literally nobody else can do these two or these three things quite like you. Right. So the concept of either added value or return on investment, yeah. is, you know, what are you going to get when you hire me? So those those three things, the mission, the what are you going to get, what's the return on investment? And if you remember anything about me, my unique characteristic is blank. Right. That's how you make a lasting impression at the interview. Um, mistakes. So most of the mistakes that have been cited, you can look in the literature or online about how you can make a mistake. The things that I would suggest are big mistakes are bad mouthing your prior employer. That's really, you know, as you're bad mouthing your prior re- employer, the current potential employer is saying, oh, I wonder whether, <laughs> whether when this person moves on from our program, they're going to be doing the same for mine. So you, you don't want to do that. You, you also don't want to project absence of energy. Mm. Having enthusiasm, having energy, giving the sense that you are a powerful, energetic, enthusiastic individual is, I think, an important thing. You don't want, this is not the, I mean, if you need to power up with the caffeine or with uh, <laughs> chocolate, uh, your five energy drink <laughs> or sugar, whatever it may take, this is a time when you want to project bright-eyed enthusiasm in an, in an honest way. So that, I think, is, is inappropriate. The other thing I think that I would say, and, and I'll, I'll ask you for your opinion, is I usually t- counsel my, my mentees not to bring up 
the financial aspects of the job at the first interview. The oh, first no, no, interview. No, never. never, never, never. Very good. So the first interview, you're trying to see whether you fit and yeah. whether they fit. But right. it's an equal it's an equal process. While while you're trying to impress them, hopefully they're trying to impress you because they want you and you want them, etc. That's what you're trying to determine with the first interview. Asking people about the money or the time off or the policy for, you know, leave, whatever it may be, I think. Yeah, huge mistake. Wait until you, you decide whether this is actually a candidate for you, you know, that, that you actually want to come there. Right. And then you can get into the nitty gritty. You were going to say something? No, I just said that you're right, that I'm reflecting back on people I've interviewed. And I'll say, so do you have any questions, you know, and that they go right to, yeah, the time off and the policies on this and the pay and the salary. I'm thinking, wait, hold on, hold up there. Don't you want to know more about the culture and the, and, you know, the goals and strategies and where we have gaps and needs? Yeah. So it's really too premature. And it, it also kind of gives the interviewers a sense of, you know, mistaken priorities or someone maybe a little bit too desperate to jump ship if they're going right there without being very more careful and cautious. Exactly. And and the other piece is, is I think, another mark against you would be if, if you're a little too full of yourself and mm-hmm. you are taking credit for things that maybe you shouldn't take full credit for. Most people think in terms of a team. And so we generally say that you should assign credit to other people, but take blame. So the best leaders, for, for example, are always sharing the wealth uh, with others and, and giving, you know, giving other people credit, but taking ownership of failures. Mm. So um, that's another, I think, another potential pitfall. Um, I, I like the, I like the, um, this may be wrong, but in the, in the letters, when we have interviewed candidates and I've been on uh, search committees, I'll be, of course, I read the letter for tone, but I literally will count the number of times they say, I, 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 versus we, 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 we. So that to me also belies someone's sense of maybe overblown sense of self-importance that I created, I built, I developed, I published, I produced. And and some of that may be true. And certainly I'm not saying don't take credit where credit is due. If you invented something, absolutely. And it's also rare that people do things in complete isolation. So there's to me, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, we, our team, in our lab. It's obvious that, I mean, if you're running lab and it's your team and your group and your division, that you're clearly a part of what happened and so I don't think it's – I'm not as impressed with someone who is full of in their letters or in person, I, 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 versus, as you're saying so nicely, you know, take the blame but you know, assign credit. That, to me, when if someone's saying we, more we's than I's, tells me, okay, team player. They get it. They get that this is a collaborative, collegial environment where we're not so consumed with wearing badges of honor and walking around taking credit for everything personally. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kim, another topic that I, I didn't list, but I, I was wondering if I could get your perspective on is about the quote unquote illegal interview question. So you're uh, in an interview and someone says something like, um, do you plan to get pregnant in the next two years? Oh, ouch. Ouch. How do you, how would you, you want the job. Right. You know, that's an inappropriate question. 
How would Kim Skorupski handle that question? Right. That's would, another uh, yeah, that, interview. That, that's, that's so tr- tricky because, yeah, in, inside my thought bubble in my head, I'd be like, really? Seriously? You just asked me that? Or you just asked about my partner or, you know, husband, wife, whatever it is, and saying things that are a little bit inappropriate. The thought bubble is, you know, I put the kind of the eye rolling thing up there. And then there's something, you know, you have to be savvy enough to say, because you couldn't, of course, you don't want to then insult someone and say, I can't believe you just asked me an egregiously incorrect question. You do realize that's illegal. And get up in a huff and a puff and good day, sir. I said good day and storm out of the room. You're not, you're not going to do that. But there's a way that you, you know, deftly turn that around and saying, well, you know, that that's an, an interesting question, and I'm sure that's part of the scenario here. I'm confident that whatever um, happens in, in my life, I'll be able to handle the responsibility. You just kind of like navigate that. Think about a politician being asked a question, and they, they don't answer it directly. So you can answer the question with, well, as we talked about earlier, I'm really com- um, committed to the project, and I, I have... Um, I'm a get. I get things done and whatever, whatever. So without saying yes, my my you know my fertility you know calendar is right here. Let me pull it up and show you what my intentions are. You certainly wouldn't go there, but you um, you answer it in a way that points back to you know the job. The, what are we talking about here? The responsibilities, the the goals. What do you think? What do you tell your mentees? I want you to play the employer in this situation and let me see whether the the suggestion that I make may be a little too aggressive. So they say, you know, do you plan to get pregnant in the next year? And what I recommend is answering in this way. And again, I like your feedback. I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Is that critical to your decision to hire me? Ooh, yeah. Wow. Is that huh. too aggressive? It gets put, it's putting someone off, but you know, it's sort of suggesting that that it's not necessarily appropriate. And, and mm-hmm. you know, is that is that one of the factors that mm-hmm. you're looking at when yeah. you're deciding on a candidate? So that that to me, yeah, that that is kind of like a ooh slap in the face, kind of back at me. But I'm thinking if the person actually had the nerve to ask the question, they're not that emotionally intelligent, first of all. So they that the fact that they asked that question to me, the the female interviewee tells me that if I were to come back with a yes no question, because then what I just asked him or her was, is that critical to your hiring me? It, it begs a yes or a no. Now, if they say yes, well, then it's game over. You know, then I'm like, right. all right, I'm out. If it's no, then it's like, well, then why did you ask me the question? So I, I'm not real comfortable. But then again, that's my personality. I'm not a confrontational person. So again, it, it all goes in my thought bubble. And then I'd be muttering to myself on the way back to the car. But I would be kind of just more like take a deep breath and try to get into the why and having them talk about you know, um, thinking that perhaps I'd like to know the like the background of that. So maybe they got burned in the past, but we've invested, you know, half a million dollars on this two prior faculty members. And then, then they, they got pregnant and then they left, you know, left us high and dry. And so I would get more at focusing on thinking, well, they're asking that because maybe they did get burned before. Or so I'm going to make sure I emphasize that I get her done I've been in situations where I, I understand maybe where you're coming from, where I too have worked with colleagues or I've hired staff and we have plans, we get things done. We don't, that's, you know, there are different seasons in life and priorities shift and understandable. And I, I'm fully committed. And what, as I said to my mantra, 
I'm somebody who finishes it. I'm a closer. So I get things done. So that's where I would kind of go to. They're worried. So how do I, you know, allay the concerns? Right. Well, again, so this is, um, I put this under the biggest mistakes because you want to do it in a way that is polite, appropriate, and yet also shows your values, you know, the appropriate way to address such issues. So the, those are the biggest mistakes. And finally, the, the fifth point that I, I mentioned at the intro was, uh, how do you follow up? And quite frequently, my junior people will ask, what's the appropriate way to follow up with someone after an interview? So I personally do not think that it requires such a thing as a handwritten note. The way we communicate in our business of medicine really at this juncture is through emails or direct communication, obviously. And so I think that it's it's okay to send a thank you note via email. Okay. What I would suggest is that that thank you note should be as specific as possible to the person and the interview that you have with that person. So, you know, you've just come from the private practice group and of orthopedic surgeons and you interviewed with uh, six people, including the president of the of the practice, etc. So while I think sending a note to all six people is nice, I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a requirement. Whatever you send should be a specific reflection on the interview that you have with that person. So you say, thank you for your time in interviewing me for the position of orthopedic surgeon. As I was uh, flying home or driving home, I was reflecting on the question you asked me in the in, in the interview about, you know, what the best procedure is for hip surgery. And I'm really glad we had that opportunity to discuss the various options about, you know, hip surgery. And I appreciate, you know, your insight into building a future program of uh, hip surgery. So something that mm -hmm. shows that you remember the person, right. that they had an impact on you, and that it was, you know, something that, you know, was important to you to remember. So whether you have to do that for all six people that interviewed you or whether it's appropriate just to do with the leaders of the practice is up to you. But if you are going to make a note, it's not thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed uh, spending the time with you. I hope I get the job, um, et cetera. And in that email, I usually will make the offer of coming back again in the process or asking in the email, uh, can you give me a time frame mm -hmm. in which you're going to be making a decision? If you haven't done that during the interview itself. Yeah. yeah. I, I would include my mantra again. You know, I would weave that Point. in there. Remember, I'm the one who likes puppies. And I would also reiterate why I want this job. You know, I would, you know, close with letting them, first of all, the mantra, oh, that's right, that's the, the guy who likes the puppies. And I'd say, Having upon reflection, I'm even more committed to um, your institution. I really, um, I, I want this job. I can do. I, I'm confident I can do this job. Something that reminds that people want to be wanted. So 
They don't want someone who goes, meh, it'll be a good enough job. Yeah, I'll take it. They want someone who's like, wants to come there and work for you and be there. So I would try to convey my enthusiasm and remind them, listen, I really want this job and I know I can do it. And I'm looking forward to coming back again and exploring how we can make this happen. This seems like a good fit, something like that. Sure. And, and I would just add to your warranty of a job. And if I was hired, you know, here's the the return on investment again. Yes. Here's the added value that I can bring. Right. So add that to that to yeah. that little section. I agree with you. Yeah. Then, now you, you're hired, Kim. <laughs> Yay! Listen, I I love these five tips, but I want to ask you one thing because I think it's really important about the culture. So you know all these questions, um, doing the preparation, getting ready for these behavioral based questions, making the lasting impression, the biggest mistakes, the follow up. Actually woven in all of that, the whole experience is how do you truly gauge a culture? Because academic medicine is one big umbrella culture. And we all know that everybody says in academic medicine, you've seen one academic you know, medical center, you've seen one, meaning that they're all so unique and so different. And every department is unique within a school of medicine and every division could be unique. How does one gauge a culture. You know, this culture is a blueprint for living or how we do things around here. How would you suggest people um, learn or get a feel for culture? Because you're looking at fit. You know, we talk about, Dave, in our leadership courses with our faculty of living that mission-centric. You're always good about talking mission-centric and aligning your mission with, uh, you know, what the work you do. So I think some people think that they, you know, that this culture is going to be great because it's got this big, fancy institution label name. It's got an Ivy League, this or that. And yet maybe that, that culture is not what you expected, and it's a complete mismatch with your values. But what are some tips? Can you give some some thought? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Is how do we really gauge a culture of an institution? How do you know? Well, I would certainly ask everyone who interviews me, what they like most about working at that institution. If you hear again and again uh, the openness and honesty and transparency, you get a sense of the culture based on what they're saying is the uh, is the main attribute of the job that they enjoy. The other way of finding it out is also about the people who have left, and they will be also be uh, hopefully honest with you about what what culturally is the reason why they might have left the institution. And again, if, if you ask people what, what is the mission of St. Joe's Hospital of Minneapolis and no one knows it, mm. well, then you have the sense that although there's a lot of talk about integrity or talk about mission, uh, that, that it's not necessarily being followed. Yeah. But uh, I think asking people what they like most about their job there or what they like least about their job there also is useful in, in sort of getting a, a sense of the, of the culture. The other thing is um, sometimes you get a better sense of the culture, not by the people that are interviewing you, but the people that are the administrators yes, or, yes, or yeah, the front office people or how they handle the phones or the technologists, et cetera. Yeah. That yeah. also, I think, you know, if you have see a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of parties going on and a lot of activities going on, 
in the appropriate setting. I think um, that also gives you a sense of culture. Yeah, I, that's exactly where I was going to go with that. I, I'm a people watcher. So when I go somewhere, I'm just, I'm taking in, like a, I'm scanning surreptitiously, but I'm scanning how people greet each other. Do they know each other by name? Do they talk about each other's families? How's your daughter doing? Are they formal? Are they stiff? Do they do they seem scared of certain people? Is it is it is it relaxed environment? I remember when I interviewed at Hopkins, I didn't even know that you and your wife Kelly used and put on a nice party for me, and I thought, wow, what a cool group that we you actually at your home invited the whole group, and I remember walking down to your front door, you had balloons and. Hi, Kim. Welcome, Kim. And the whole group was there eating um, dinner around your table and just watching people. It was vegan. And it was vegan. <laughs> of course it was vegan. Of course, with Kelly Usum on deck. Um, it was wonderful. And I just remember watching that thinking, wow, th- this is, people really care about each other in this place. And it's, there's this deep, you know, history and pride in the institution. And there's a true collegiality. And, and I, I, got that, of course, at, the, at the, your party, but just by watching how people interact with each other, how people interact with, just like when you go on a date and they, they tell people, you know, how does your date treat the wait staff? How do they, you know, engage with, how do, how do they tip people? How do they, do they hold doors open for people? That kind of like watching how people treat each other and do they know the housekeeping staff's name in the building? Are the restrooms clean? Do people take pride in their their home, if you will, their their office home? So, all those things to me speak of culture, and and there's no right or wrong. It just it is what it is. But will I fit? Can I see myself fitting into this culture and the way they live around here and the way they interact with each other? Sure, I, th- I think one good place of observation during the day is the handoff from one person to the other. As you're going, from, you know, if, if you're being taken from one person to the other by the previous person who interviewed you, how do they interact between each other? That That's another, like you said, how do they treat each other, yes. uh, the different interviewers? Yep. That's another good point to, to be observant about for that's culture. Right. That's right. Well, they always tell people, um, us, when we interview candidates, spend as much time as possible with a candidate because... That's why sometimes we have these grueling interview schedules that go eight in the morning to, you know, nine o'clock at night for two days. You're trying to spend as much time as possible. And how do they handle stress? And how does, how do they handle just this kind of a schedule? And they're trying to see the same thing about us when you're on deck or you're on stage, if you will, with Dr. Usum. But then I'm going to have an, an administrative assistant take you to the restroom for a little bit of a break. How are you going to treat that person, that staff person who's showing you where the restroom is or allowing you an office space to sit for a minute and check emails? Uh, that gets reported, as you're saying. People see if you're being nice and polite to Dr. Usum, but now you're being a little bit maybe brusque or rude with other people. That's, that's noted, you know, in the more time you spend with someone, the more relaxed and authentic they are at the end of the day versus when they're fresh and trying to get a gauge of, oh, I'm meeting with the dean? Well, I'm going to act this way, and then I'm going to put a different mask when I'm off stage with um, trainees or students. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, folks, this has been another wonderful episode with Dr. Dave Usum, who is a professor of neuroradiology and our associate dean for professional development. Dave, thank you again. This was wonderful, and um, really appreciate you and all your wisdom that you share with us 
Thank you, Kim. Did, did I get the job? You absolutely, you nailed it, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.